I now have great pleasure to invite our 2019 Angus Mitchell orator and our honorary member, Nobel laureate, Dr. Tillman Ruff AO, as chair of the day to formally introduce our other honorary member, uh, Dr. Alan Finkel AO. Tillman, I'm in your hands. The meeting is yours. Thank you for being available to join us today. Thanks very much, um, President Kevin, and uh, I, I'm very humbled uh, to be in this company and, and delighted to have have the role of introducing Alan. I'm sure all of us have, have seen uh, be a constant source of, uh, of fact and, and wisdom over particularly recent months in these very challenging times. And I think today we'll be really privileged to have an insight into his role in within government, particularly in, in his role as Australia's chief scientist for the last, um, since early 2016, to addressing the huge number of issues that have been thrust upon us uh, this year. And, and really, as he has said in on a couple of occasions, his, the rest of his very rich and diverse life and career could hardly be better preparation for, for the role of, of chief scientist advising government about the crucial evidence base that needs to underpin key policy development. Um, he started, he says that he was um, born with a science gene, that every cell in his body loves to solve problems like every good engineer. Um, PhD in electrical engineering from Monash, but then moved to neuroscience um, at the Australian National University in Canberra before branching out into manufacturing sort of high tech in Silicon Valley in the United States um, for the next 20 years, developing and producing equipment that really has substantially changed the way and pace with which uh, pharmaceuticals can be developed. And other involvements in business have included in, in charging electric cars. And then a very ongoing interest in education, particularly in relation to scientific areas, both at school and early career researcher um, levels before becoming vice chancellor of, at Monash um, for eight years and president of the Australian Academy of, of Engineering and very major roles in science communication, uh, including through founding um, Cosmos uh, magazine. He's been a recipient of, of many national and, and international awards and, and it's a real delight to, to introduce you, you today, Alan, to, to have your insights about what's been keeping you up uh, this year in your really important role. Thanks very much for joining us. Tillman, thank you. Uh, I much appreciated those words. And um, I also wanted to say thank you to Philip Cornish. I thought your toast was very meaningful and my congratulations to you, Reg, for the Paul Harris Fellowship. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I thought that I would keep this light but not trivial and take you through the last few months. The COVID pandemic has obviously affected us all and opened up a variety of opportunities. Now, with a bit of luck, I'm going to share my screen. And Reg, can you just nod up and down to make sure it's all working? Good, thank you, excellent. 
so my topic is working in isolation as we all, not all, but many of us are. So what's the chief scientist to-do to list look like on a typical day spread out over a few months? Obviously, you've got to do that first requirement at the beginning of the day, take the cup of tea to the wife, walk the dog, buy hand sanitizer. I think that's been there, done that. Now, I really truly want to take you through in some detail some of the more substantial things that have been on my list in the last couple of months. I'm going to talk to you about two of the, two of the projects that I've done on the COVID-19 pandemic itself, one to do with ventilators and one to do with a new information group called the Rapid Research Information Forum. I'd like to share with you some work I'm doing on behalf of the Prime Minister on our bushfire capabilities, really our disaster capabilities, and some work I'm doing for the Energy Minister uh, on low emissions technology into the future. Okay, so let's start with the ventilator challenge. So ventilators come in two types, but the type that I'm trying to, that I'm concentrating on is the ones for the ICU, the invasive, the intensive care unit. Basically, if somebody gets very ill and goes into respiratory failure in COVID, with COVID-19, they have to go to the ICU and get intubated. So a tube goes down the trachea into the breathing spaces and they are literally pumped with air and a intensified oxygen mix to keep them alive until their bodies can recover. All ICU beds have these kinds of ventilators and at the start of the crisis, so if you looked in February or early March and you did a stock take, you would have seen that we had just over 2,000 ICU ventilators in Australia. But by the middle of March, people were doing the projections based on early modelling. And at the time, if you did a back of the envelope uh, analysis, you would have seen, my God, the numbers are going to be huge because we were looking at doubling of the number of new cases every four days. And that's what's called exponential growth. And people were genuinely concerned that we could have 50 to 75,000 people in the ICU simultaneously. Now, we don't have the beds, we don't have the doctors. It would have been an extraordinary problem if, we, if it had eventuated that way, but those were the sorts of numbers, the sort of numbers that were coming out of the modelling. And there's a picture of a, of a ventilator. It's just a machine that through tubes goes into the patient's breathing spaces. Um, what we uh, determined was that 75,000 wasn't realistic, and even if it turned out that way, we wouldn't have the doctors and the nurses to deal with it, but we felt that we needed to aim for 7,500 uh, invasive ventilators uh, by, by around about now. So I got involved because 
at the time, and I can remember it very well, it was the 18th of March, um, nothing was happening in this space through the Commonwealth Government, and yet the Commonwealth Government knew that it needed to step up. And so after I got some calls from some academics, I, I did some internal calls and spoke to some um, senior executives in the Department of Industry, and we decided to put together a ventilator task force, and I took the responsibility of working with them and leading the development of the strategy by which we would acquire the necessary 7,500 ventilators. And it's a five-track strategy. So very quickly going through these uh, five tracks. The first one is to activate the reserves. So it's a little bit like a, a military analogy. It turns out that we had more, a couple of thousand more ventilators in Australia than the hospital administrators realised, hiding in emergency rooms, hiding in... Uh, transport ventilation facilities, in, the, in military facilities, you know what, even in veterinary facilities like veterinary hospitals, because when you ventilate um, an animal, you're using a human ventilator on that animal and with adequate sterilization, it could be reused, but we never had to go down that route. And also the machines that are used in surgery called anesthetic machines can be repurposed as an ICU ventilator. So the first track was to activate the reserves. Then we started to purchase internationally. So why do I have toilet rolls as my illustrating picture there? Because hoarding was going on. We found we were competing with countries from Europe, from America for sure, uh, all around the world. Every country was getting the message from those terrible um, television clips that we were seeing from Italy and then from New York that ventilators were critically important. In fact, one ICU specialist said to me, Alan, the battle against the COVID-19 virus will be won or lost in the ICU. That's how critical this capability is. So we started purchasing, and that was difficult because every time we had a line on a source of supply, it would disappear or the price would go up or, or something terrible would happen. And the government didn't mind paying the price. It was just difficult to land them. But it was only one of five tracks. The third was to activate an existing domestic supplier. There's a company named ResMed, who is an internationally famous, well-established manufacturer of primarily non-invasive ventilators. These are ones that are used at home for sleep apnea, a mask that people can wear at night to help them with their breathing through the night. But they also have a small line of medical grade intensive care unit ventilators, and there's a picture, and, but they had a real supply chain problem. They couldn't get a lot of their components because they were made in China, and China was in lockdown in the middle of March. So the Australian government worked with them to help them uh, find domestic manufacturers and activate some of the international supply chain. We still felt that that was not enough. There's too much risk in the second and the third track. We found another company who was not historically a manufacturer in Australia of IC or ventilators of any kind, but they were a manufacturer of medical grade instrumentation, a company named Grey Innovation in Melbourne. ResMed is headquartered in Sydney. Grey Innovation is headquartered in Melbourne. And what they did quite cleverly and on their own initiative is they contacted a UK manufacturer of a fairly old-fashioned but well-proven TGA-certified ventilator and acquired the licence to make it here in Australia. 
So it gave us our fourth track. And our fifth track was to channel the energy. It turns out that there were dozens of university engineering departments or small manufacturing companies or even large manufacturing companies who got the message that we needed ventilators and they thought, gosh, we've got a 3D printer. All this involves is a pump blowing up a balloon, a lung's like a balloon, let's make something. Well, it turns out you want a much more sophisticated device connected to you if you were to be so unfortunate as to be in the ICU. And so I had the role of writing the ventilator spec. Why me? Because I've had manufacturing experience, not on ventilators, but I know how to design a product and to write a specification for a product. And I collected 15 ICU physicians who were my experts, and all I did really was channel their expertise into a robust engineering appropriate specification that is up there. If you went to the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration website, you'll find that specification. And that really raised the bar for aspiring local manufacturers. And there are a couple who are seriously trying to get into the business and I wish them genuinely the best of luck. So um, we met the goal of uh, supply and demand dramatically well. We increased the ventilator supply from 2,000 to round about now to about 7,500 to 8,000. And at the same time, as you know, the government did a fantastic job on flattening the growth. And so the prevalence in Australia is very low. The number of people who went into the ICU is very small. So if you're looking for a supply-demand equation where you have an inequality with supply exceeding demand, by gosh, we've got supply exceeding demand. But we knew from the beginning that the best outcome would be for all those new ventilators to be sitting on the shelf because that would be indicating to us that Australia is doing well. But that was you know, a month of intensive activity for me, literally 24-7 from early in the morning to late at night. But also, and I say this with enormous appreciation, with the members of the Ventilator Task Force who were drawn from across the public service but headquartered in the Department of Industry and the executive management of the Department of Health and the Department of Industry. This was public service at its best, pulling together, forming a task force, very focused, learning on the fly and delivering the goods. So I put a tick against ventilator task force. So the next one is called the Rapid Research Information Forum. And what this was addressing was a concern that yes, the government was taking health professional advice and treasury advice and reserve bank advice, but not the broader advice representative of the capability of Australia's research workforce. And after discussions with the Prime Minister's office and ministers and departments, uh, I convened a new group called the Rapid Research Information Forum, the RIF, or correctly pronounced the RIF, the RRIF, and it's looking at the challenge of how best to bring research knowledge to the attention of government. So the process is pretty simple. It's a demand-driven process. The first thing is that a minister comes to us with a question. That's the demand. Believe me, as a manufacturer, I can tell you, 
you're most successful when you make products to meet demand rather than pop products onto the market and hoping that the demand will eventuate. That's called the field of dreams. It doesn't always work. So we start with a question from a minister. That question comes across to the academic experts, the fellows from the Academy of Science, the Academy of Humanities. It's not just science. It's the research, scientia, knowledge. The Academy of Science, the Academy of Humanities, the Academy of Social Sciences, the Academy of Engineering, and the Academy of Medicine, the state chief scientists, our New Zealand counterparts. It's a big group, fabulous expertise. And their, our commitment is within 10 days to provide a rapid response back to the minister. And that rapid response is obviously fast, 1,500 words, so it's something digestible, written with an audience in mind where the audience is an intelligent, well-educated, non-expert. And we focus on providing one answer to one question. So it's very digestible. And it's been highly appreciated by the ministers who have asked questions of us. I thought that um, better than me just talking about it, I'll quickly take you through the questions. I haven't got time to take you through the actual comprehensive answers, but I can touch on elements of the answers to give you a sense of the spectrum of things that we've been able to do. So the very first question we got and came to us on Easter Sunday was literally from the health minister, but it was based on a phone call that he had just had an hour before with the prime minister. And I remember very well because I was taking a few hours off walking along the Yarra with my wife and I got a call from the health minister and they were worried about what's going to happen when winter arrives because influenza is a very seasonal disease. Is COVID-19 likely to be as seasonally impacted? The brief answer is yes, there is likely to be a seasonal effect, but it's not huge and it's well within the capacity of um, personal hygiene and public health measures to manage. So it's a consideration, but not a significant concern. The second one we looked at is reinfection. There had been a few reports in the press about people being sick, being clear, healthy, and then getting sick again. So the minister wanted to know, is that a likely eventuality that people would recover but still not be able to go out safely into the workforce? And the answer is it was these were probably misreports of people who had been sick, had been cleared by a false positive, just an error in the test, and it turns out that the viral particles that you measure to determine if somebody is infected linger in some people for a long time, for many weeks, maybe a month or two. And so they were tested positive, then they got a false negative, I should have said, I'm sorry, they got a false negative and it was thought that they were clear. And then they had another test because of ongoing symptoms or re-emergence of symptoms and tested positive again. But the reality is uh, the incidence of reinfection is possibly zero and the likelihood is very low. Um, another question that came up is, can you do epidemiological mapping of the spread of the virus without testing individuals, but by testing populations? How? Well, it became clear from the early results coming back 
uh, from China and other uh, high-impact countries that you get viral shedding into feces. So sewage contains viral particles that can be detected by the standard test. So in principle, if some people in a community of 30,000 are carrying the virus and then you go to the wastewater treatment plant and run the test, you should in principle be able to see some evidence that that suburb or that district is has people who are infected, whereas you might not have detected any of those people. So it's important for epidemiological mapping. Well, the tests are good, but it's difficult to have the sensitivity if only one person in 30,000 has the disease. But the tests are getting better and better, and we're almost on the point where that might be practical. It is practical in Paris because the prevalence rate is so high there that you might have 300 people or more in every 30,000 and therefore get a concentration that is measurable. So they're investing in that. Uh, we did a review of antibody tests. There are two types of tests. One is to measure the viral particles. That tells you that you are carrying the infection. The antibody test is only valid several weeks later, and that tells whether or not you have developed a immune response to the virus. Many, many people are asymptomatic and you don't know that they've ever carried the virus. So with this sort of antibody test, you can get a picture of what fraction of the population or given individuals have had and recovered from the disease without even knowing that they carried it. Uh, for the education minister, we did one on the likely differential outcomes of online learning versus in-class learning, because as you know, the whole of the country went to online learning. Well, we mapped out what is known about this from incidences around the world, from uh, districts such as a special type of charter school in America where online learning for school-age kids is the norm. And it turns out it's probably not as good as in-class learning unless you're privileged to be in a home where you've got parents that assist the kids with their learning and the kids have fabulous access to computers and, and bandwidth, but in low-income families, it's a risk. But we know from what happened during the uh, earthquake in Christchurch, where the whole of the Canterbury region in New Zealand locked down for a few months and students were taught online, we know that no matter what the short-term impact, they all caught up with their learning trajectory. And the answer is that if it's only a few months, online learning is actually not a problem and, and keeps the kids engaged and learning. Um, we looked at the impact of the pandemic on the Australian research workforce. I won't go into that in detail, but it's a serious um, impact because of loss of revenue. Um, We've done two reports on the promising vaccines and the promising therapeutics. The short answer... Twelve of them are in clinical trials. If you're a pessimist, you would say... ever developed a vaccine for the, the earlier five. So why would you be optimistic now? On the other hand, we've never seen this intensity of effort 
well-funded effort across the planet. So there's good reason to be optimistic, but it's a challenge. It's not a shoe-in. It's not easy. Um, we looked at the impact of women in STEM in the STEM workforce, and it's 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 worse for women in the workforce than for men. Details are complex. I mentioned we looked at therapeutics, but I'll add that there is no high prospect therapeutic in development at the moment. There's one called remdesivir, which reduces by about 30% the time to recovery, but doesn't really reduce the death rate. What's likely at the moment is it'll be a little bit like HIV, where it will be a combination of therapeutics that will help us to treat people and uh, save their lives and make them healthy again. Uh, we looked at the viability of the virus on surfaces. It turns out it lasts for a long time on plastic and stainless steel for a couple of days. The one surface you can be fairly confident of is copper. If, you, if you're a, a boating person and you know about anti-fouling paint on the bottom of a boat, the main active ingredient is copper or copper sulfate. Copper kills the viruses and after four hours of applying living virus to a copper surface, there's nothing viable left. The last one we looked at um, is the COVID safe application and that was specifically on what motivates people to download and use it. And it's very complicated, but the single biggest factor is confidence in government. And interestingly, we've reached almost 40% of the addressable users, the adults who own smartphones, which is far higher than any other country. And about two dozen countries have been developing these apps. And that tells you that people have developed confidence in the national government, the combination of the federal government and the state governments working together and giving consistent advice in a way that's rarely been seen. All right, moving on, I can put a tick next to the Rapid Research Information Forum and put a bigger tick next to the COVID-19 group. Uh, bushfire work, do you remember the bushfires? It's staggering how the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed it out of people's minds. It's a big deal, it's non-trivial as you know. So in late January, the Prime Minister requested a report from the CSIRO on improving our climate and disaster resilience. The word climate is in there. And he insisted that that work be supported by an expert advisory panel chaired by me, which we're actively doing. And the report is due. We're in the, in the final straits now to, it was going to be COAG, but now it's due to the National Cabinet in 30th of June. Um, one of the things we're very cognizant of is that there's been a lot of work, over 300 reports in the last 150 years on bushfires, and we've learned a lot. If you compare, I want to compare Black Saturday, which was in 2009 in Victoria, to what we're now calling the Black Summer that we've just lived through. Black Saturday, the number of deaths was very, very large, very high, 173 tragedies, 173 fatalities, half a million hectares burnt. In the summer we've just been through, there were 17 million hectares burnt, okay, more than 30 times as much land area. Now, every single fatality is a tragedy, but it was only 33 compared to 173, and that tells you that we're doing something better than if we had faced this recent summer without those learnings. So we're building on those learnings. Um, we have 
a number of principles they're working by, but before I go to them, I just want to draw your attention to the top of the slide there. The first sentence, that quote is the first sentence of the terms of reference that came to us from the Prime Minister. The first sentence says, Australia's climate is changing. You would not have expected to see a sentence like that two years ago coming from the Commonwealth Government to a review like this. There is acceptance and awareness now of the reality of climate change and the importance of managing it, dealing with it, mitigating it, and ultimately um, ameliorating it. So, Hallelujah. So the things we're looking at, um, we've got in mind that everything we recommend has to be practical, evidence-based. Um, there's a Royal Commission, there's Victorian New South Wales reviews, so we're not trying to duplicate those reviews which are looking at organisational performance and legislative change. We're focusing on the contribution that science and technology can make to improving our resilience and um, our recovery. Um, so I'm not looking at legislation or organisational performance and building, as I said, on uh, other work. Uh, sneak peek, we, we don't have published recommendations, but we will certainly be talking about the importance of states in their climate, in their disaster planning, using a consistent set of climate scenarios. There is a real lack of harmonisation of equipment and terminology across the states, and you see that when people living close to the borders are using the various phone applications. Um, we see technology being applied to improve building practices and vegetation setbacks. Um, we feel that the scenario planning for managing disasters has to take into account the increasing likelihood of sequential events like bushfires followed by floods or coincident events like bushfires at the same time as droughts. And sector coupling is referring to the fact that we're living in an increasingly complex world and transport, electricity, water and communications all depend on each other. And so if one goes down, you have a cascade, and so your planning has to take that into account as well, and you've got to have backups. Bushfires. Last big one, low emissions technology roadmap. So this is significant. The, I mentioned the, the first sentence of the bushfire work is that the climate is changing. The government is also aware that Australia has a commitment internationally and is preparing itself to strengthen that commitment. So there's a new project underway called the Technology Investment Roadmap, and it's being done for the Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction. It's quite a title, uh, Angus Taylor. But believe me, it's for him and through him to the Prime Minister and Cabinet. This is a significant piece of government's intended positioning going into the future. The work is being supported by Commonwealth Department, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The work is being advised by a ministerial reference panel of very senior people in industry and investment and research, and I have the honour of chairing that. And so my panel is advising the task force from the Department of Industry. My panel is advising the minister, and it's a really good working relationship. The minister comes in for half an hour at each of our meetings. I have one-on-one -on -one calls with him on a regular basis. We're in public consultation at this moment. If any of you are experts in the future of low emissions, it's not low energy, it's everything. It's um, low emissions technology in agriculture, in transport, in industry, built environment, as well as electricity. Now's your opportunity between now and the 21st of June to put in a submission. 
the output of this process by the end of September will be a low emissions technology statement, which will signal to the investment community and the research community where the government sees the best prospects of technology helping us to lower our emissions into the future. And that's going to happen every year. Um, that clean technology statement that I just mentioned is also being developed with principles. The first two are about scale. We're not looking at things that are trivial. Leave them be. Other people can deal with that. It's going to get Commonwealth government support backing. It's got to have large potential to abate the emissions of carbon dioxide. And it's got to have large economic impact. The government wants to bring in low emissions technology that with time will economically compete and outcompete the existing high emissions technology. That's important. Where possible, we want to focus on things that build on Australia's comparative advantage and that are within a few years or certainly within a decade of being ready for mainstream. I'm not going to give you a lecture on Greek architecture. I'm using this as an analogy. The Plinth at the top there is the long-term whole of economy emissions reduction plan. What is that? That's a plan that the government has not detailed, but they have announced that they are committed to doing this. Um, every year, the United Nations has a, uh, I think it's the collaboration of the parties or COP. Uh, Paris was COP20 in 2015. The next one will be COP26. It's been delayed. It's going to be in Glasgow. The government is committed to doing a whole of economy long-term emissions reduction plan, and it's got four pillars. One is the National Hydrogen Strategy that I have not spoken about today, but I had the honour of leading the development of last year, and it was unanimously adopted by state, territory, governments, and the Commonwealth Government, Labor, Liberal, and um, National Party Coalition, and that's been adopted. It's in play. The state governments are funding their aspects of the strategy and the Commonwealth Government is funding its aspects. And I can't talk about it now, but it's a significant long-term strategy to use hydrogen instead of fossil fuels to power the economy and as a chemical for industry. Uh, a second pillar to hold up that long-term whole of economy emissions reduction plan, the plinth at the top, uh, is an electric vehicle strategy. The government has announced that it's in development, but not given any indication of what will be in that yet. The third and the biggest is the one I've just been talking about, the low emissions technology roadmap, which is whole of economy. And the fourth, I can't tell you really what it is. It's everything else. It's other. It's what you see on your profit and loss statement when you get it from your accountants. Everything you can't really put a number on because it's not significant enough individually, but collectively they add up. Okay, low emissions technology roadmap done. Can I say I've learned anything? Yeah, I think so. And a lot of these things will be obvious to you, but they're good to see. The pandemic, what we've seen here in contrast, what you're seeing here in government compared to what you can see in a large unnamed country to the north of us, the benefits we've had as a federation, which is a difficult form of government, being run in a collegiate fashion through the national cabinet with clear messaging to people. The benefits that have accrued from the prime minister and premiers being advised by health experts. It's good to see. And 
the determination that is being spoken about at the moment, but we're not seeing it yet, but there's a clear determination across government and industry, not just to recover to where we were, but to seize the opportunity to use the stimulus funding to build back a better Australia. Um, on the bushfires, it's implementing and learning from the past, the lessons of the past, making sure that we use uh, technology to the fullest. And the big one is changing the way we do our scenario planning, wargaming, if you like, to take into account the climate-driven likelihood of ever more intense, but also coincident and sequential disasters. In terms of the technology, the learning there is that realistically, good intentions are not enough. You can't just agitate to lower emissions. You've got to apply technology to fix the problem. The problem, intriguingly, is a problem that was wrought by technology. So we are looking at using technology to fix the problems that technology wrought. But also that a well-conceived plan will lead to desired outcomes. What I'm getting at here is that you've not heard the government say zero emissions by 2050. What they are saying is their political mantra is, um, you know, obviously political. It's saying what's the good of a target without a plan? What the government's trying to do is implement a strategic plan. If we get the plan right good things will happen. We will lower emissions whilst also having um, a strong economy. And if we get it incredibly well implemented, we could actually exceed 2050 as a target. Otherwise, we'll come in a little bit behind that. It doesn't matter. We're just going to do the best we can. Um, 40 years ago, 40 years ago was the first time that I had an opportunity to look at video conferencing and for 39 and a half of those years, it's just been terrible. But I've got to say in the last few months, I've learned that it's come of age. It's a combination of the cameras and laptops and the speed of the processes, the upload speed in our broadband networks and the incredible software like Zoom we're using today, Microsoft Teams and Google Meets. Uh, it's really great to see. My finishing point is Bessie and Arthur. So what the animals have learned, because we're all learning something. So Bessie, my dog, what she's learned is that my wife and I, we're staying at home because we love her. Arthur is my son's dog, and I'm sure that Arthur is really annoyed that Alex is staying home all, all the time, and Arthur has learned incorrectly that Alex got fired. It's all in the mind. Pretty much, that's it. Thank you. Terrific. Many thanks, uh, Alan, for those uh, extraordinary insights into a very substantial set of issues. Um, we're running a bit against the clock, but I've, I've been given some indulgence from, uh, okay. from Reg and Kevin, if, you, if you're able to, to take yeah. a couple of questions. And I might sort of, sort of bundle them around the key topics that you addressed, and I don't, we don't expect you to address all of them comprehensively, but your, your key insights would be, would be very welcome. So there were a couple around COVID. Um, so one of them was, well, when these decisions and plans were made, specifically when you were talking about the ventilators and so forth, we knew much less about the virus and its epidemiology then. Knowing what we know now, what, what would have 
what should we have done differently? Uh, the second question was about the level of population immunity that would enable safe resumption of sort of normal activities and is a vaccine possible in that time frame? I think you've, you've already addressed some of that. Um, and there was a question that I presume was related to COVID about the best and worst case scenarios for recovery. So those are substantial questions, but just pick the eyes out of whichever one. So the first one was what we would have done differently. And, you know, it's actually hard to imagine. There were some mistakes. We had the Ruby Princess and a few things like that. But they were specific mistakes within a broader approach, which was pretty effective. We as a country responded early. We were lucky in a pervert and unfortunate sense for the other countries. We were lucky that we got to see the experience in Italy and New York where they were caught unprepared. Uh, we got to see that, so we had a couple of weeks to get started before them to build the strength of our health system. So, you know, if overnight somehow something happened and we had a tragedy and 6,000 people needed ICU treatment tomorrow, we've got the capacity to deal with that. We've got a very robust public health system. Um, we ramped up, we sent the right messages, we went through phase one, phase two, phase three in a sensible fashion and we had the states coordinated. We used public health. The basic strategy is test, trace, isolate. And we managed to buy in tests and we've been giving people the tests. I mean, our testing rate compared to our detection rate is through the roof. We've done over one and a half million tests and only found 7,000 people who are positive. So that's um, you know less than one percent, half a percent. Whereas in America, it's like a third of the people tested are positive. So we brought on testing, tracing, and isolation very quickly and very effectively. So I can't think of anything substantial to do different. Uh, the question on population immunity, uh, very very difficult. Um, we have only had less than half of 0.1 of a percent people detect positive and they're the people who will have natural immunity so early thinking was gosh if this gets out of control eventually we'll have people a huge number a fraction of our population who have recovered and can safely go out again that approach isn't going to work so we need to continue with test trace and isolate for the foreseeable well for many 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 months because if we um, sacrifice any of them. I should have mentioned hygiene as well. If we sacrifice either the hygiene, test, trace, or isolate, we, we run the risk of a bounce. And we don't have vaccine and we don't have treatments. If we do get a vaccine, it's unlikely to be available before the end of the year. That would be really very, very fast for the development of a vaccine. And similarly for treatments, the repurposing of existing medicines as therapies has not yielded a lot of success. We've had one called remdesivir and maybe some other combinations that are in trial, but nothing has been a blockbuster success. So therapeutic treatment is likely to come either from combinations of existing uh, compounds or from something new that's in development. So we don't have a magic bullet coming our way in the terms of ready-to-use vaccine or ready-to-use therapeutics. So 
hygiene, test, trace and isolate are the way to go. And what was the third one? The third one was about best and worst case scenarios for recovery. Oh, look, based on what we've achieved so far, you'd have to be pretty optimistic that, yes, there might be a bounce, but it's unlikely to be gigantic. And the health system can easily manage a much, much higher caseload than we've got. We don't want people to get sick. We don't want to lose anybody. But, of course, um, in so many other illnesses, the because we've contained COVID-19 so well, the death rate of cardiac illness and cancer is much, much higher than what we're facing in Australia. We're very privileged. So I'm not suggesting any slackness at all, but there's this constant need to balance between the economy, the health of the economy and the health of the population, and they're intertwined. So the government, I think, is doing a pretty good job. I should say, put an S on that. The governments mm. are doing a pretty good job on balancing that. Yes, and I might just add that I think this is one area where you've made a major contribution to our elected officials really taking evidence and experts more seriously than they have tended to the other crucial issues that you've that you've had to address. And it was very interesting to hear your description of a of a pathway for trying to streamline and make that much more common. Is that progressing well? I mean, I vividly remember Penny Sackett in that uh, recent ABC program, um, you know, really reflecting very sadly that she regarded the failure of, uh, during her tenure as chief scientist, to really see Australia make a decisive move towards reducing its greenhouse emissions um, as a, you know, failure of her tenure. And it doesn't sound to me as if you're headed, headed that way. But, but um, on the climate front, it sounds as if um, there really are some promising seismic shifts that could ho hopefully take this out of the sort of culture and political wars that it's been bogged down in for the last decade. Is that how you see it, Alan? Well, so I'd say I'm quite optimistic. This is the first time that we've had a government of the day rather than a government or rather than an opposition um, clearly strategically planning to reduce emissions through the combination I told you, the hydrogen strategy, the low emissions technology strategy that I'm leading now, and uh, electric vehicle strategy. I'm on the record of being a supporter of the use of gas as part of the transition. Why is that? Um, because at the moment Australia is doing spectacularly well on rolling out solar and wind, which are called variable renewable electricity ignoring hydroelectricity, which is unlikely to be expanded. In fact, we are rolling out solar and wind at three times the rate of Germany. We're the fastest in the world on a per capita basis. Germany's a third of us on a per capita basis. But to keep it going, you need to support the solar and the wind with something to firm it up so you can have it on demand. And yes, batteries can do that, but we don't have them today. So that becomes a bit of a rate limiting factor. Um, compared to coal, natural gas is a much, much lower greenhouse gas emitter. 
when you're making electricity and compared to coal, you don't have to use it as much. You only have to use it a few percent of the, on average, a small percentage of the year uh, to back up solar and wind. So I think if we don't pursue perfection, but pursue the very good, build on our solar and wind rollout capabilities, build on whatever it is that comes out of the low emissions technology roadmap, the electric vehicle strategy, build up our hydrogen, uh, clean hydrogen capacity, I think we've got very good prospects of dramatically and steadily reducing our emissions uh, over the next one and two decades. Thanks. There were, there were two other questions on climate. One was about the potential for Australia to be a, a major exporter of, 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 of renewable energy. Um, and the second about the role of nuclear energy in, in, a, in a renewable future. So. Uh, we actually have a huge opportunity to export renewable energy. Um, so through the pathway of taking solar electricity, wind electricity, using them to crack water to make hydrogen. And if you're making hydrogen from solar and wind electricity, there's no carbon dioxide involved. And if you can get your transport and everything else worked out well, you are doing what I call shipping sunshine. Solar energy is obviously sunshine. Wind energy is sunshine. It's the sun that heats up the ground that causes the hot air to rise and turn into wind. Um, it's a new era. The idea of shipping renewable energy from one continent to another in large quantities has just, just never been done. It's not there yet, but the starting uh, pilot projects are underway. Australia has the largest um, high-intensity irradiated mass, land mass in the world. We've got large project expertise. We've got a lot of solar, land, solar irradiated land where there's coincident wind and wind plus solar is much better than either or because you get a more constant net output to reduce the costs of your subsequent production of the hydrogen. So we see enormous potential for Australia to be taking sunshine, turning it into hydrogen and shipping it to Germany, to Japan, to South Korea, to countries that need it. And they're engaging with us very actively about doing that. Thank you. And there was a question about your views about the role of nuclear power in this energy field. So you've got to separate that out from the technological... There's three aspects to nuclear power. Technology the the cost effectiveness of it and the political and social acceptability of it. In Australia, it's currently not politically or socially acceptable. Um, a lot would have to change for that to happen. So let's just put that one to the side. So the two that remain are the technology itself and the cost effectiveness. Um, for traditional nuclear, which is those gigantic nuclear stations that produce two or three gigawatts, like bigger than a big coal-fired electricity station, the future of them is, has been called into question all, all around the world. Um, because of safety considerations, they've become more and more expensive to make. Every one of them is unique. They're bespoke civil engineering projects and therefore the licensing procedure is really long and it takes 10 to 15 years to build them, which means you've got a financial project risk in doing them um, and quality control is hard. They've, and they're very expensive to run and they can't compete against natural gas, solar or wind. 
They just can't. And we haven't dealt with the fissile material or the waste issues. There's a new way of doing it called an SMR, a small modular reactor, where you make the nuclear reactor in a factory. It's called SMR, small modular reactor, but the small is a bit of a lie. They're, you know, like 200 tonnes. But they're small in the sense they're small enough to go into a flatbed trailer with, you know, 120 wheels and be taken from the factory to where they're going to be deployed <clears throat> on a flatbed trailer going at two kilometres an hour with police you know, flashing lights in front and behind. But the benefit of that is you get the quality control made in a factory and you get the cost effectiveness of mass production. And so small modular reactors are where in other countries in the world they think there's a chance that nuclear might be a prospective technology that provides you with zero emissions electricity that is absolutely dispatchable. So it's being actively looked at in America and in Europe. There's one particular project I won't go into now in America that is very promising. It'll be cheaper than the old big bespoke ones, but it still won't be cheap. It's likely to be in the vicinity of $100 per megawatt hour wholesale, whereas in Australia we're targeting long-term $40 or $50 per megawatt hour. So it's, it's very uncertain, Tillman, whether or not nuclear will be successful anywhere in the world in the long term. And in Australia, there's the added complexity of it. It's just not a legitimate topic for discussion at the moment. Thank you. Can we have one more, Reg? Are we... Um... The, the, then there was one related to, to bushfires that I just didn't want to neglect that was um, uh, someone expressed concern that um, post-traumatic stress disorders after the bushfires had sort of suggesting that they'd been inadequately recognised and treated often and whether that was something that would come up in the bushfire response work that you're involved with. So it'll come up through a number of avenues, uh, Tillman. It'll come up through the Royal Commission, but it will also come up through the CSIRO report. Um, but it'll be more observational than a strong recommendation because we're focusing on the science and technology. And you can argue, of course, that post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health issues um, related to the bushfires um, are real and grounded on the health sciences. Um, but they're complicated and we feel that at best we can uh, draw attention to them as a finding rather than a recommendation. But it's, 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 it's significant and we certainly come across it in our consultations. Thank you. And, and generally mental health is getting a lot more recognition that it's clearly been overdue uh, for a very long time. Well, I... Tillman, I've got to ask you, was that a difficult question for you to ask me about nuclear energy? Not at all. <laughs> um, so I, I'll it, look. It's been a real delight talking to you, Alan. The uh, the chat is going pretty crazy with positive comments about people. Obviously, really appreciating the breadth of your of your work, your ability to inject 
evidence and good sense where the rubber hits the road on policy and government matters and uh, and some very positive comments about um, about the the ability of evidence to influence policy processes and 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 confidence in your capacity to to do that so thank you very much for joining us and sharing uh, sharing those insights and your experience with us and and wish you very well in in in, in this incredibly important work that you're doing for us all Thank you for sharing it and uh, Reg and Kevin, Joe, thank you for organising it, for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be here. All right, I'll sign off. Thank you, Tillman. Thank you, Alan. Uh, you've taken us on a fantastic journey today and uh, we are delighted to uh, have witnessed uh, your uh, insights. Uh, we've learned a lot and we certainly appreciate the time and effort you've put into joining us. Uh, coming your way shortly will be some R100 centenary socks. It's our way of uh, just giving you a little memento to keep your toes warm for winter. I can assure you they are 200% Australian made. They're actually made in Preston uh, by our past president, uh, Phil Endersby, uh, at Wilderness Wear. So they'll be coming your way. And we thank you again for your time, your contribution today to a very, very memorable meeting.